As we kind of open, I just wanted to, there's something I was reminded of, I was listening to another pastor this week that he pointed out, I thought it was so good, I wanted to point it out to you, um, about Jesus and Christmas uh, meaning, was that it's a reminder uh, that the very focal point of time itself is centered on the birth of Christ and is the dividing point of time in world history. And I think we all know that. We all know that B.C. is before Christ and A.D. is not after death because then we would have a 33 and a half year gap in time. Uh, But it's Latin for Anno Domini, which means year of the Lord, the year of his birth. And the thing I think it's really cool to point out, especially this time of year, is that what his birth signaled is that whether you're a Christian, non-Christian, atheist, agnostic, or politician, you're all on Jesus' time, (laughs) right? We're all on Jesus' time. Amen? So as we finish out uh, 2017 AD, today I want to bring a message to you that I feel like is very, very close to the heart of God and and to help us center around what's really important uh, this Christmas season, and that's the topic of our worship of Him. And so many of you may know I grew up in a very worshipful home. Uh, Pastor Marty and I grew up with parents that were always engaged in leading worship. And a uh, matter of fact, they had a gospel music group known as the Straight Family Singers, shocker, um, that traveled all around the greater East Texas area and western Louisiana at times and uh, ministered in southern gospel style. And my, some of my earliest memories were of worship practices in our house. And so I was always the guy kind of laying by the drum set watching my cousin play. And uh, But I remember my, we had a piano, the same piano that was there then is still in our house today. And I just remember worship always being such a huge part of my life. And so um, as my cousin went to college, they needed a drummer. And so I got recruited. And at 12, I think I began touring. That was my first gig. Um, it, it paid in room and board, mostly, uh, but it was my first kind of fray into uh, ministry that way. But I really think, as we, you know, some of my more, more poignant memories around this time of year, especially as mom getting on the piano and playing Christmas carols, and uh, my dad sometimes getting out his guitar, and, and just for, you know, for no apparent reason, for no uh, defined period of time, just really singing and worshiping. And I think that culture of worship that was kind of cultivated in my heart and your pastors um, really spilled over into this church. Uh, When the church was first being talked about, really, before it was ever officially launched, um, there was a prophetic gentleman that's been in my life and your pastor's life for a long time that came and spoke some words to him about this church. And I won't go into all of that, but one of the words that he gave was on the subject of worship. And what he said was that Pathway would always be known for her worship, that it would be pure, and that he would always provide the worship leadership and the musicians and the best of the singers to our church, which I can say after eight years, he's absolutely more than done that for us. I'm so thankful for our teams. Um, I've been, you know, if, when we first started, Pastor Marty would, would lead on the acoustic guitar, and I had uh, a, some bongos and a medicine shaker. That was our, that was our worship band. Um, but as God built the team over these last several years, what I think is the coolest part to me about all of that is who he sent. Because we don't have any diva personalities, and we don't have self-seeking personalities on our team. We have people that really just love Jesus and love leading worship. 
And I think that's what garners the attention of God, and that's what draws him in inside of our worship. Don't you agree? So I want to jump in um, this morning. The subject is worship, and I want to just open real quick in prayer. So Father, I just thank you for uh, giving your son to us. I thank you that he came to this earth. I thank you that he lived a very tough human existence, that he sacrificed and felt every emotion we feel. He went through all of life's trials and tribulations, and ultimately that he sacrificed and gave his life for all of us so that we could approach you and ultimately we could spend eternity with you in heaven. We're so thankful. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. The message I want to share with you guys today is called How to Worship a King. And I'm going to give you a little disclaimer, okay? What I, what I don't want you to hear from me is this is what you should be doing, okay? The, the posture that I really want to minister from today is, is more of a challenge because I can promise you that as I studied and prepared for this, I was challenged a whole lot. And so don't hear uh, any judgment coming from me. I want, what I want you to hear is God's heart and specifically God's heart for our worship. All right? So I want to look at the Christmas story. How many love the Christmas story? I do. My dad can recite it from memory. He does it every year with the grandkids. I cannot, so I will read it to you. (laughs) So I'm going to pause at a couple of key places in it, but I want us to start in Matthew 1. You're all familiar. 118. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, which would have been Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I want to jump to Luke 2, where we introduce the shepherds and the angels to the story. Verse 8, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I want to pause for a note here. So here we have the introduction of Jesus to mankind, right? And how does the Father God choose to introduce it? With worship, with a multitude of angels. So if you kind of read that out, and I did a little bit of study in the original text, that 
multitude of heavenly hosts would have referred to somewhere between one and two million likely angels, if you can imagine that picture. Um, it's hard to imagine, but if you can just kind of put you know, your, your whole imagination to work, imagine those shepherds in that field and millions of angels singing and announcing Jesus to us. Continuing in verse 14, I'm sorry, 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told them. So note here, the shepherds' response to meeting Jesus was worship. So they left worshiping, praising, singing, glorifying God. Then about one to two years later, we look back at Matthew 2, and this is where the wise men come into the picture. And so um, I hate to mess up nativities if you didn't already know this, but the wise men didn't come till one to one and a half years later is what most theologians believe. But don't worry. If you have a nativity in your yard, I have a solution. Just put your wise men kind of on the opposite side of the yard, and eventually they'll get there, okay? Is that a deal? <laughs> But we know that because uh, in Matthew 2.16, you see um, Herod ordering all the boys uh, to, under two years old to be, to be murdered because of his evilness and insecurity. And we know that Herod would have tried, wanted to be really safe about that number, so most people believe that theologians that study this way more than I, that Jesus was likely around a year and a half old or so at this time. So they enter the scene. We're going to look at chapter 2, verse 1 of Matthew. And after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. I want to point out here as well, the wise men that appear in the Christmas story, if you study the Magi or the wise men, there were different sects of them. And so if you look back in uh, kind of biblical history, a lot of times you would see these figures pop up in the company of kings and pharaohs. And so if you think of Pharaoh, if you think of King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel and that era, a lot of times, though, those guys would tend to be more on the side of like sorcerers and diviners. Um, this group was not uh, because, number one, sorcerers wouldn't have been seeking out Jesus to worship him. Um, but these wise men were very learned men. They studied the sky and the stars. They studied the scripture because you see them quoting scripture to Herod here in a second in the story. Um, these guys were truly um, seeking out the, the Savior of the world and the Messiah to worship him. And so we see that picture kind of painted here. And I'll skip down uh, to verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them uh, went until it came to rest over a place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So the wise men's response to meeting Jesus was worship. 
And if you look at the Greek word there which is for worship, which is proskuneo, it literally means that they fell down on their face, prostrated before him, and worshiped him. Then we see them give these, these costly gifts. And I really wanted to kind of give you a little bit of color and context for those, just because I think it's really relevant to the value of the wise man's worship to the Lord. But if you haven't studied this before, the symbolism that exists with these three elements that were given to Jesus are significant. The gold would have signified his royalty and kingship. Um, Some historians believe that the likely brick that would have been given to Jesus that would have been normal in that day and age would have been worth somewhere between $300,000 and $500,000. It would have been worth value-wise a lot more in that day, obviously. But all the gifts were extremely valuable. So if you look at frankincense, it was typically used in burning incense in the temple. It was made to use, or it was used to prepare that for the priest to use. Uh, This would have been a symbol of his divinity and priesthood. Um, And it had a very similar weighted value as, as to gold. Myrrh would have been a very potent aromatic resin, uh, mostly used in the preparation of people for burial. Um, and used quite frequently in the way of embalming fluid. And so this spoke to Jesus' sufferings and his imminent sacrifice for all of us. It also was very costly. And so it wouldn't have been a stretch to value those wise men's gifts at somewhere in the neighborhood between $1 and $2 million. So they weren't bringing diapers and a binky to the baby shower. You know, they were, how many would have liked wise men to show up at your baby shower? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Me too. Um, but, but I really wanted to underline that because I think when you, when you talk about worship, um, it's, it's an assignment of value. And so the wise men valued him so much that they, they left their lives for the better part of a year, year and a half. They, they brought tremendously valuable gifts with them. And the only point of their journey was to go see him and to go worship him and offer their gifts to him. You see that picture? So... Just to recap, Jesus is introduced to mankind in the world with millions of angels singing and worshiping. The shepherd's response is to drop all they're doing and, quote, with haste to seek him out, to which their response is glorifying, singing, worshiping God. The wise men's reaction once they see the star they've read about and studied for so long is to pack up their most expensive gifts and travel for a year or more with just the hope of finding the king with their sole intent of just worshiping him. And when they do find him, they fall on their faces and do so, and then present him with their very extravagant and very costly gifts. Also symbolic in this story, I think it's worth pointing out, is when you look at the shepherds, they would have been the lower class of the day. And so these shepherds would have been likely shepherding broad-tailed sheep, um, what most believe in that day and time. But they would have been kind of the most common of the most common of the most common of people. Now, on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have the wise men who would have been kind of representative of the more affluent. And I think one of the statements that God is making to us through that symbolism is that Jesus is the king for all the people, right? Not just the affluent, not just those lower on the totem pole. He's, he's our king for all of mankind. Amen. So before we go any further, let's dig into what worship really is and start there. So I want you to think to yourself as I talk this next couple of seconds, what is worship? Think about what you would say, how you would answer if I were to ask you that question. 
I want to work backwards just a little bit, though. I have a quote in my office uh, that says, if we want the necessary to stand out, we must first get rid of the unnecessary. And so I'm going to call out some unnecessary from the subject of worship real quick. Is that okay? Um, Of course it is. I'm speaking, and you don't have a microphone. So Um, thank you for that permission. Um, But what is worship not? Worship is not a musical genre with artists, publicists, it's without a fan base. It's not that, okay? Worship is not something that you record, package, sell at Walmart or on iTunes. And I'm not upset at iTunes. I download worship music all the time on iTunes. But I want to draw the distinction today between what I think our culture sometimes paints worship as and what worship really is, if we look at it in the context of especially the Christmas story and our, our relationships with the Father, Worship is not a course of study. It's not a degree plan. It's not entertainment. All right? Did you hear that one? That one sets a little harder. Uh, I think you know, we have such a diverse musical culture that sometimes worship kind of gets put into this little pocket and we just listen to it for entertainment value. And that's, that's not worship either. That's not a terrible thing, so don't get me wrong. I'm just saying careful where we place it, right? It's not three or four songs before the preaching starts. It's not the extra time to get my coffee or to run to the bathroom or whatever else that may be. And that's none of you guys, so I'm not talking to any of you, okay? Those other people that aren't here, (laughs) right? Um, It's not filler. Um, Our worship team spends usually a couple of weeks preparing for any given weekend, Why do we do that? Because we're not just picking four songs we like to throw up here on the weekend for you. The goal when we set out to build a set for the weekend is to try to figure out what does God want to say in worship? What's the message? How does that connect to the message? How does that relate to what we feel like the heart of God is for a given weekend? Sometimes that set changes one or two or three times, and all my musicians groaned. But sometimes that's what happens because we're trying to do our very best to put the very best worship in front of the king. Amen? Um, Looking at the definition of worship, so there's an old English word that kind of makes this word up called uh, worth-ship, so W-R-T-H-ship. And it really simply means what you would think. To give something worth, to demonstratively attribute value to, True worship, in other words, is defined by the priority that we place on who God is in our lives and where God is on our list of priorities. How did the wise men and shepherds express their worship? Through obedience and sacrifice. Jesus was a priority, right? The shepherds dropped what they were doing and with haste made their way to the stable. The wise men sacrificed even more. They gave up months, possibly years of their life, they, they journeyed away from their families, away from their livelihoods. They took the trek to see Jesus. They brought extremely valuable gifts. So if you look at their example, they, they assigned tremendous worth to Jesus, did they not? And that's what worship is. It's not just a few songs in a service. It's what we do in those songs. It's what we do throughout the course of a week. It's how we live our lives, as we're going to talk about today. So kind of self-evaluation moment for all of us. And remember, not judgment, challenge, okay? 
what are we giving the most worth or worship to in our lives? So if, if you, like I did in studying for this, what I would ask you all to do is inventory your day, inventory your week, inventory your month, especially this time of year. As Christians, this is a big deal for us, Christmas, right? Where is our worth being assigned? What are, where are our values when it comes to God's worship and our submission of our worship to him? Um, worship is one of the primary ways we express love and affection to our Savior. So would any of you want uh, your girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse, if they, uh, if, you know, in, in that relational context, if they never showed you affection, if they never showed you love, if they never showed you honor, would you really like that? No, right? Um, can I tell you something? Jesus doesn't either. And he's not mad about it. He just wants so much to be in relationship with us. He's always very patiently waiting there, sometimes when we're ignoring him. And I'm the chief of sinners. I've been guilty, letting life you know, take too much of my attention. But I just want to challenge all of you to, to think about that relationship and the value of it. And think about what I can do in a given day to put my affection where it belongs. I'm the only one who has the power to save my soul. I'm the only one who has the power to bring me into his eternal kingdom. Because all this stuff here goes away. All the time that we invest in our career or you know, amassing things or all the, you know, the, the stuff that life in these United States sometimes clouds, um, all of it's gone at the end of the day, right? And the only thing that remains is that relationship. Um, so I want to talk about the musical vehicle of worship because I think it's really important. Um, kind of as I talked about, I've really never known life without music in it. Um, but I think we could all agree that music is very powerful, and it can be powerful for good or powerful for bad, right? Um, someone once told me, you know, thinking about the subject of why God uses music or why music is so uh, powerful, is someone told me it's because music will get you to say things or sing things, rather, that you would never say out loud. How many know that's true? So when I was thinking about this point, and I apologize in advance, but there was a song that popped in my brain that uh, came out the year I graduated high school, 1993. I'll tell on myself a little bit. Um, and the song was by Beck, and it was called I'm a Loser Baby, So Why Don't You Kill Me? <laughs> Who remembers this song besides me? Thank you for being honest. I already repented. You can too, later. But, but seriously, think about that for a second. How many of you just walked around <coughs> quoting those words? I mean, we wouldn't do that, right? We're not going to walk around saying, I'm a loser, baby, why don't you kill me? But how many of you sang that song with regularity back in the day, like I did? <laughs> yep, I'm, I'm guilty. Why? Because music has a... God built it, number one. He built it for worship, but it's just as powerful, unfortunately, on the opposite end of that spectrum if we don't understand the connection it makes to our souls. And so you sing that song long enough and get it deep enough in your spirit, and it will affect you. I promise, right? 
Um, the first word of the course of that song is actually in Spanish, which I never, never to, until a few days ago had a clue what it was. Um, I just kind of hummed it, you know, the uh, best I could. But it's soy un perdedor, which just means I'm a loser in Spanish. Um, but this just speaks to the power of music. Conversely, we sing a song today called Spirit of the Living God. And in those lyrics, you find, Spirit of the Living God, we only want to hear your voice, voice we're hanging on every word. Spirit of the Living God, we want to know you more and more, we're hanging on every word. Because when you speak and when you move, when you do what only you can do, it changes us, it changes what we see and what we seek. When you come into the room, when you do what only you can do, it changes us, it changes what we see and what we seek. You're changing everything. Powerful words, right? How much more powerful are those words sitting inside of that song this morning in your worship? Because worship connects to you in a way that words cannot. God built worship to connect to all of us, body, soul, and spirit. When we worship, it connects to us in a way that mere words never can. Do you believe that? You know that to be true? Um, music, and specifically worship through music, as we saw in the Christmas story, seems really important to God, right? We also know from Scripture that there's a whole lot of worship in heaven. And so just kind of think of the gravity of him announcing the Savior of the world to us for the very first time with millions of angels worshiping. And I think that kind of underlines the importance of worship as it relates to our relationship with God. Um, I personally think that God sent the first angel to the shepherds to kind of be an icebreaker, because I think if he'd sent the millions of angels first, we may never have saw the shepherds make it to the manger. <laughs> That's my personal theory, but uh, whatever the reason, that was the outcome. Um, musical, music is a powerful antenna of the soul. So if you've ever watched a scary movie, and those slightly off-pitched strings... That tension that is created as we're watching, let's take Jaws, for instance. If you ever watched Jaws, now turn the volume off of Jaws, and it's just a fish swimming around, right? But you put those ominous strings in there, and all of a sudden we're anxious, aren't we? And it's because worship connects into our heart. It connects into our soul. Music connects into our heart. It connects into our soul, good or bad, Right? Uh, we see kind of an example of this in 1 Samuel 16. King Saul was being tormented by evil spirits, and he recruited David from the house of Jesse to come play his harp for him. So David gets up there, and he begins playing and worshiping. And as a result, the spirits would leave. Saul wasn't even a follower of God at this time. He was t a tormented man. But even in this case, you see the effect of worship on the human flesh, right? It's undeniable, the places that it reaches in us that we can't reach from the outside. Re worship is also a relationship and connection with him. So God created us as triune being, beings, so body, soul, and spirit. He's a triune being. If any one part is disengaged, then it's not worship. So if my mouth is singing worship, but my heart isn't connected to him, then it's not worship, right? If I'm singing God a song of love, but my spirit is dead in unbelief, that can't be worship. 
You've got to have all three connected for it to be true worship. You see that picture? Um, Jesus addresses this in Matthew 15, verse 8. He says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. And in vain right there just literally means zilch. It comes to zero. It's as if we didn't. And I know we've all been guilty of that, so I'm not tossing any stones. I've been there too. I've sang the songs with my brain a million miles away. Um, and so I know that we've all experienced that. I think what the, the clarion call is today, if you will, is to understand the gravity of what worship should be in our lives and make sure that when we're engaging in worship that we're engaged completely, body, soul, and spirit. Amen? Um, God's so cool because he made the human body as an instrument. So if you think about it, we clap with our hands, we can stomp with our feet, so we got percussion built in, right? Um, we can sing, which is kind of a product of wind instruments and stringed instruments, kind of a symbolism there, right? And so God built us to be worshipers. I mean, he literally designed us to worship him with our bodies, but also with our souls and our spirits. And so all three of those come together. Now, some may be better tuned than others. <laughs> um, but it's true nonetheless, right? Our bodies were made to be musical. So worship, remember, is worth-ship. It's attributing value to Jesus by living our lives with him as a priority. And it's offering him and engaging all of ourselves in worship to him, our body, our soul, and our spirit. So point two is for whom and what is worship for? And this is my shortest point, but I really wanted to make kind of a statement with it. Um, I want to share a story with you that I wish wasn't true, but it's really a true story. And this goes back to a church that my wife and I used to attend but there was this dear saint of a lady that was on the worship team. And if she didn't particularly care for a certain song, or she thought it was maybe a little too secular or a little too unspiritual, she would holster her mic and go sit down by the side of the platform until the next song she liked would come back on. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why in the world would this lady be allowed to be on a platform leading worship? I thought the same thing, Okay. And I poked fun at her in conversations with my wife, and um, it really irritated me more than anything, as you can imagine. Um, but this week, and I, I've kind of made com you know, comments about you know, that, that situation before in other conversations, but this week as I was studying, I felt like God said, you may not do it physically, but you do that too. I was like, dang it. <laughs> but think about it. How many times have we been in worship services where maybe the musicianship was a little less than ideal? Or maybe the worship leader couldn't carry a pitch? Or maybe, you know, they didn't play my favorite song that weekend? Or maybe I came in with, you know, some stuff on my mind and really wasn't feeling it that morning? How many of us have gone off the platform and sat by the side? Probably all have, right? You're not leaving me by myself on that, are you? I'll you? Okay. I see head nods. All right. But, but seriously, I want 
you know, worship isn't about music. It's not about what we want. It's not about how we feel. It's not about all the conditions being right. We're very fortunate here to have such a phenomenal group that help lead us in worship every week. And it's not, I don't take that for granted. I really appreciate that. But it really shouldn't matter if we have no music. It shouldn't matter if we go a cappella every week, right? Um, the important thing is that we understand that worship, number one, is for Jesus. And number two, it is not about us. I think when we get those things out of order, we lose perspective. And we, we stop understanding that worship was designed for us to commune with God. It was designed for us to give thanks to God. It was designed for us to communicate with God on a spiritual level unlike any other. And so I think the thing we have to settle is that worship has nothing to do with me and what I think or feel. It has everything to do with what I think or feel or how much I feel like the Lord is worth to me. Amen? It's about giving our very best to Jesus no matter what. And if we're not careful, we'll become worship consumers instead of worship distributors. And we don't want to be on the consumer end of this equation. We want to be distributing worship to him. Would you agree? Worship is reserved for Jesus alone and not us. And if you want to see the most obvious example of getting those priorities out of order, you don't really have to look a whole lot further than Lucifer. He was heaven's worship pastor. He was the guy that, you know, or the being that God saw as one of the most beautiful angels. He led worship for heaven, but he got something wrong. He started thinking it was more about him than it was about God, the creator of the universe. And ultimately, it cost him really dearly because he and a third of heaven were thrown out. So that's the big example. But I think we can apply that to our own lives. Let's keep our priorities in order as it relates to worshiping him. Amen? On that note, I think I just really felt like I wanted to point this out. The job of a worship leader is really one primary thing. It's to facilitate a connection between the bride and the groom. If we interrupt that communication or if we circumvent or take attention from the groom, from the bride, then we're missing the point. And so I know we have a whole lot of worship leaders and musicians and singers that go to church here and also minister outside of here. And so I wanted to kind of give you this picture and the best analogy I could come up with was kind of a waiter. Uh, and I read this in a, a book recently, but I think it fits so well. And so if you can imagine as a worship leader that you are the waiter. And your job is to facilitate the best possible experience for that couple that's dining with you at the restaurant. To be seen and not heard. To be there when you're needed and not when you're not. If there's conversation going on between them, then pass and come back at another time. But the thing that the danger is, let's say I take Elena out in this scenario, if that waiter starts flirting with my wife, it's over, <laughs> all right? So it's the same thing in the, the spiritual and the worship context. We have worship leaders 
who sometimes step out of line and out of bounds, and they're more interested in trying to get the bride to see them than they are to see the Father. And I think what we've got to understand in our current society, in worship culture especially, is that this job is to get them to talk to each other and commune. And when that is happening, you back up and you allow the communication to happen. And you allow the, the ministry to happen. You allow the conversation to happen. Amen? That was free. That was just bonus material. <laughs> but really important. Uh, I interviewed a guy for that was applying to be worship pastor here about a year or so ago. And as we talked, it became apparent that it wasn't going anywhere. But one of the things that he said was, um, well, I do 45 minutes of worship. And I said, okay, we don't generally. But, you know, I mean, everybody has their lenses and filters, so I, I didn't immediately eject him. I was, we were still talking. But the thing that ended the conversation was when he says, but don't you worry about it, people love me. And I was like, and we're done. <laughs> because this ain't about you, Bubba. <laughs> right? <laughs> Worship leadership is so delicate because you do have to have some God-given abilities, but you also have to have the spiritual common sense to understand what your role is. And so that's something that's always going to be a priority here and something that, quite honestly, we don't get right all the time. We're working hard at it. We're pressing in this year. We had a word that came out of our elders retreat this past November to all of us about what the coming year is going to look like in the area of our worship. And what we really felt like God said was that 2018 was going to be a year of us going deeper in worship and seeing God's kingdom come through worship. And I'm excited about that, frankly. Of course, I'm always excited about worship in general. Uh, but when that comes from all the other guys, too, and we see it as more or less a, an, a directive given us for this coming year, the exciting thing that I think that, you know, that kind of leads to for all of us is that in the kingdom, when you are worshiping, stuff happens, right? And so the things that we've really been seeking as a body, healing, you know, the supernatural, we've been wanting to see uh, you know, restoration and marriages and relationships and the, 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 the fruit of the kingdom, a lot of times you see those things happen in an environment of worship, right? And so that's what we're going to be pressing into as a body for this next year, and what you can be praying about is what that looks like and what all of our parts of that are as we move forward. So to borrow a point from a, a quote from Zach Neese, who's a worship pastor at Gateway, that I really like. I wish I knew him personally. Clay and Beth know him really well. They're good friends. Uh, but the quote is, is this, if the cross proves how much we are worth to God, then our worship proves how much God is worth to us. And I think that'd be one of those quotes, if you're like me, you might want to save that one and refer back to it ever so often. But our worship shows the world how valuable our God is. And if we're not ascribing value to him, then we're missing the point. Amen? So the wise man's worship was extravagant and expressed what they felt about Jesus' value to them. So they read, they studied the skies, they watched, they waited, they spent months searching for him till they found him. They bowed prostrate on the ground before him. They blessed him with their most extravagant and costly gifts, gifts that were fit for a king. And the challenge for us is what does our worship look like? So point three, how should we worship? Jesus gives us very specific guidance, fortunately, 
he talked about this subject a good bit. One of the notable places is in the account of the woman at the well, which I'm sure all of you are familiar with. This is in John 4. And this is the woman at the well talking to Jesus. She says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, you're looking at him. Well, he didn't say it that way, but he said, I, I who speak to you am he. In other words, what he was relaying to her is, you can take what I say into the bank. What she was expressing is what would have been the cultural norm of the day, which is worship occurred in a tabernacle, in a certain city, with a certain priest, doing a certain thing. What Jesus was saying is, no, 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 I'm here. Wherever I am, wherever you are, I'm there. Right Now, she didn't get this because Jesus hadn't yet been crucified. But what he was making the point for all of this is that Jesus was removing the geographic requirement from worship. He was removing the obligation for us to have to go through a priest or to sacrifice an animal because he was taking that on himself. And so I wish I had time to really go over the symbolism of the tabernacle with you. I really wanted to. I just couldn't fit it in this time frame. But I have it on really good authority that Pastor Marty is going to teach on worship next year. So I'm sure he'll cover it well. But one of the key elements I really kind of wanted to pull from this to, to kind of show you is that prior to Jesus' death, if you look at the tabernacle, uh, when you got into the Holy of Holies, the, the holy place and the Holy of Holies, the priests were allowed one time per year to go into that place, one of them, and to offer, on the Day of Atonement, offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. So he would prepare himself. There was a ceremonial ritual that kind of preceded all that, but he would prepare himself. He would go to the veil, um, which, if you study, it's... Uh, when I think of veil, I don't think of something very big, honestly. But... Uh, the dimensions and the makeup of that veil was, would, be, uh, would tell you that it's 60 feet high, it's 30 feet wide, and it's four inches thick. So it's not some little curtain <laughs> that they walk through, okay? Which is the picture I think a lot of us tend to think about. This was in a, a phenomenally um, rigid uh, structure. And so the priest would approach the Holy of Holies and they would tie a rope onto his foot because if for some reason he went in unworthily, um, they would hear the thud and they could draw him back out with the rope and not risk danger themselves. <laughs> so if you look at the, the example of the temple, you have this priest who would go in and offer the sacrifice for the people. In this conversation with the lady at the well, what Jesus is saying and what he ultimately did is when he sacrificed himself on the cross... Uh, you, you guys most, mostly all know this, I'm sure. Uh, 
as he died, that veil was literally ripped in half from the top to the bottom and exposed the Holy of Holies. What that means for all of us is that we no longer need a priest because guess what? We're all priests now. God conferred that upon us. So now wherever we are, whatever we're doing, we have immediate access to the throne room. Not around Jesus, but through him because he is the gate. Amen? So John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How should we come to worship? Through the gate, through Jesus Christ. So we're to worship in spirit and in truth and also with our lives. How do you worship with your life? Primarily through three ways, through our time, through our talent, and through our treasure. And I think what we have to understand is the nature, the very nature of God as a giver. He gave his only son for us, right? So he is a giver. He is a generous God. And what he wants for us is to mirror that in our own lives. He wants us to be quick to give of our time, our talent, and our treasure, doesn't he? And so I talked to a friend of mine this week um, at the gym, and he was asking me what I was going to speak about, so we were talking. And so I just asked him, what would be your definition of worship? And it was so good that I wanted to share it with you. And he's a very, um, he's a very giving guy. He's a, he's a Christian and does a lot in his personal life um, to give back to, to the Lord through the community and through some other uh, endeavors. But his answer, I thought, was so good. I wanted to share it with you. He just said, I want to try to live every day focused on what I say, the decisions I make, how I live, all being worshipped to him. And I think that's what Paul was getting at. If you look at Romans 12, Paul speaking to the Romans here, he said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Giving of ourselves is worship. We see a lot more giving this time of year, don't we? As a matter of fact, a lot of you give tremendously, and we've seen that uh, very tangibly this Christmas season through ministry outreaches that some of you are involved in. Uh, different, we've had you know toy drives for kids connected to our family, church families. We've had some for the ministries that we're connected to. But what I'm talking about really goes beyond just something that we do seasonally. It's about a way we live our life. And so the challenge for all of us, I think, is to really live every day with the posture of generosity because nothing is closer to the heart of God and the worship of God than being generous and giving. You see that? So kind of to wrap all this up today, what I really want you to come away with is this. How should we worship? It's not just something that we do on the weekends. Although weekend worship and you know, community worship, the way we do it here, is important, vitally important. It's not just that place. It's throughout the course of your entire life, every other part of your life. So Jesus is worthy of our worship. Like the shepherds and the wise men showed us, he is the priority and deserving of the very best that we can bring him. Worship is for him. It's not for us. Amen? 
Let's put our distractions and stuff aside when we worship and focus on him. And remember, if the cross proves how much we are worth to God, then worship proves how much God is worth to us. In John 4.23, Jesus said that the Father is constantly looking for true worshipers. So how many want him to find us as true worshipers? Amen. Go ahead and stand with me. And as we close, there's a quote that I, I came across I wanted to, to share with you from uh, Dr. Eddie Hyatt. It just says, when we pray, we are preoccupied with our needs. When we praise and give thanks, we are preoccupied with our blessings. But when we worship, we are preoccupied only with him.